passage last Sunday night. We left off talking about reproaches, and we talked about David and his reproach. And tonight we're going to look at the prophetic aspect of Psalm 69, and particularly verse 9. And I mentioned in my prayer earlier about praying for Don. Don uh, talked to me after church today, and he is having some pretty serious eye problems, and that's why they haven't been out at night. He just can't see to drive at night, and so uh, he's going to get it checked out. We're just praying, praying that it might, it might clear up uh, for him. Um, and also they asked prayer for their daughter Kathy, who might be moving back to this area. So just a number of things um, there. So I appreciate if you do that. Um, Psalm 69 in our, in our Bibles tonight and verse 9. It says this, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. And that was spoken by David of David, but then also futuristically concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, So let's pray and then we'll uh, pick up where we left off. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the time we can be here tonight. And Lord, please meet with us and we ask that you would bless our time and thank you for the time we've had of singing and I just thank you for Brother Robert being willing to lead the songs, and I just pray you'd help continue to help, to help us as we work together on that. And we pray, Lord, again, for those who are not able to be here tonight, and we do pray for those who could be here but have chosen not to, and, and it seems like it's been that way for quite some time. But Lord, would you please work in hearts and uh, just keep us uh, going and growing, and we ask that you would uh, work in this community. And please, Lord, open doors of opportunity to share the gospel and now just and please bless evening services being held elsewhere tonight and help us as we spend a few moments in the word of God and pray for the help of the Holy Spirit tonight and we pray in Jesus name amen now this morning talked a little bit about take about the danger of taking verses out of context like the devil did when he tried to use scripture to tempt Jesus Christ, and of course we, he left out the big, he left out the verse about treading upon the dragon, which of course is on the devil himself. And yet there's a here in verse uh, verse nine of Psalm 69, the New Testament writers took that verse in two parts and used it to apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the second part with an application. For us, the second part of verse 9, the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. Uh, Paul wrote about that in the book of Romans as an, as an admonishment or instruction to the people of God. So we'll see those things this evening, Lord willing. First of all, let's take a look at Christ's reproach. Um, in the second, of John, second chapter of the Gospel of John, very familiar passage of Scripture, uh, we find the Lord Jesus Christ in the temple, and he sees something there that stirs his holy zeal. And certainly it's a tremendous passage of scripture. Um, it's the chapter of John where uh, Christ performs his first miracle according to John's gospel, turning the water into wine, and of course that's been used 
so many ways uh, to justify drinking and all those kinds of things. It's not meant to be that way. Anyway, tonight we're not looking at the subject of wine, but remember uh, the Greek Hebrew word in the Old Testament translated wine, the, the, the Greek word translated wine in the New Testament refer to all kinds of things, from grape juice and, and so on. And so the context will tell us whether it's good or bad. Um, and I know that some, I've heard, read commentators who somehow believe that Jesus turned the water into strong, fermented wine that would make people drunk. I just, I can't accept that uh, based on what the Bible says about drunkenness, drinking, and not being a stumbling block. Can you imagine the author of the Word of God tell, who tells us not to be a stumbling block being a stumbling block? Uh, certainly, if he turned that into intoxicating wine, what a stumbling block to put before all those people. Anyway, so that's the context. Jesus does that. And notice what it says as we go down to verse 13 of John chapter 2. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, that is from Galilee, and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of the money sitting. Now, we understand, I'm sure you do understand what that's all about. When at the Passover time, they had to offer sacrifices, they had to purchase things for the Passover, and so there'd be Jews coming in from all over Israel, and so um, the Jewish leaders and so forth had made quite a business out of that, quite a profit-making uh, business by charging people, selling animals, and of course changing money. And they made the rule that only their particular currency was, would be allowed, so they'd have to, be, have to exchange it. Of course, they charged prices you know, out for that. And so Jesus came upon that. Now, obviously, he knew he was there, but he chose on this particular day to make an issue of what was going on in the house of God. Verse 15, when he had made a scourge, in other words, a whip of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. In other words, tipped them over. And so, picture us, picture out here, a place like this, filled with animals and with money and, you know, money changers and all the business and this, you know, the, the, the uh, what kind of animals? Sheep, oxen, you know, the bleeding of the sheep, the, the, the mooing of the oxen and the bidding and the, bid and the negotiating and all the hollering and everything going on. And, and Jesus came in there and he just, he just tore the whole thing apart. He sent, he chased everybody out and he said to them that sold doves, Take these things hence. In other words, get these things out of here. Make not my father's house and house of merchandise. Mer house of merchandise simply means a marketplace. In other words, don't turn the temple of God, my father's house, into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And the word um, uh, zeal, he talked about that back in, in Psalms. It talks about David and the zeal of the house of God. Um, it just means to be jealous over. The idea of zeal, jealous. It's, it's the idea of jealous. And the Lord Jesus Christ could not tolerate his house being turned.
turned into a farmer's market, basically. Right? And, uh, and one of the things the Lord hates is when people take advantage of, uh, of one another, all right? And I was asked they were doing. They were, take, they were taking advantage of the people, and it was a convenient thing. I'm, I'm sure that I'm understood that. The Lord never intended when he, when he instituted the Passover to have a sale barn, you know? And the people were supposed to bring their own animals, their own lamb, and, they, and, and their own oxen. They were supposed to do their, their, bring their own animals and, and do, do what the, the Word of God commanded, you know, eat the Passover, offer sacrifices, and do everything in the proper way. And they have stopped doing that. Uh, just, just among everything else. It seems like you think about what the Lord Jesus Christ came upon when he came to earth. They had just totally, totally perverted the, the Old Testament Judea, Jude, Jewish system to suit their own wants and their own needs and all those kinds of things. So um, what can we learn from that? Well, we can learn that God has certain things, certain way that he wants his house. And in New Testament, the church, there's certain things he wants there and certain things he doesn't want there and, and certain way that the church is supposed to be carried out, all right? You know, singing of hymns and praying and preaching the word of God and fellowship and encouragement, all those things, but not turning into today like so many want to turn the church into an entertainment center. And that there's really nothing in the scriptures anywhere about that. They wouldn't, you know. And so um, the Lord was the, the Lord was certainly um, just just angered um, over what he saw there. And also, I'll turn over to Luke chapter 19 for just a moment also. And uh, see what the what Luke writes about the same thing, about a, a similar situation. And it appears that the Lord may have done this more than one time. Um, in the Gospel of John, uh, the writer there, John, places it very early in the Lord's ministry. In fact, it talks about the, the turning of water into wine as being the first miracle that Jesus did. Well, in Luke 19, it's almost at the very end of Christ's earthly ministry. So he, there could be that he did this more than one time. And so he is, as he, we come to verse 41, let's, let's pick up there. Luke 19.41, And when he was come near, that's Jesus, he beheld the city and wept over it. Okay. And so in John 2, we, we see the, you know, the zeal of the, the house of the Lord. We see Christ's anger and his heart is stirred with wrath over what's going on. And here we see Christ weeping over Jerusalem. Again, because of their turning away from the Lord. So both of those emotions, if you will, very paramount um, in the life of our Lord Jesus. And he said this, he wept over the city, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, now Jesus is addressing the city, these things which belong unto thy peace, or the things which belong unto thy peace, in other words, what's required to have peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. Do you ever think about people, maybe family members or friends or co-workers, and say, oh, why can't they see it? it why can't, oh, if only they knew, you know. And uh, then he goes on to say, some of the things that they didn't realize, 
for the day shall come, in verse 23, upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground. In other words, they're going to flatten the city, and thy children within thee. They shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. In other words, they didn't recognize the visitation from God in the person of Christ when he came to earth. And so, and when the Romans came, the Roman army in 70 AD, they absolutely flattened the city of Jerusalem and the temple and everything. And of course, the temple was not, has not been rebuilt. And verse 45, in that, in that setting, Jesus once again goes into the temple. And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought, saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And again, they were, he calls it a den of thieves because, they, again, they were taking advantage. They were cheating the people. But notice it says, one, it says something in Luke that it doesn't say in John. It says that Jesus cast out the ones that sold and them that bought. So he said, you're both corrupting uh, the house of God. The ones by selling, the others by buying. And so um, he taught daily at, at that time as well. And so my house is the house of prayer. Preaching and worship and prayer and singing, but you know, and when when the temple was built, back in the book of Isaiah, it mentions that my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, all nations, and yet through centuries the Jews barred any Gentiles from coming into the temple. And yet God said clearly, house of prayer for all nations, and so you know, God even in the old days there was that separation. There was intended to be separation between the Jews and the Gentiles as far as married, marrying and, and worshiping idols and all that, but God never intended to shut the Gentiles out from coming to know the true God. And when, of course, one, one, one outstanding example is, or a couple of them, uh, was when Solomon was king and, and people came from all over the world to hear Solomon's wisdom. And, and it doesn't just say to hear Solomon's wisdom. It said concerning so, so, to hear Solomon's wisdom concerning the Lord his God. And then God sent Jonah to the city of Nineveh to warn them. And of course, God knowing what was going to happen, um, he sent Jonah there, not so the city could be destroyed, but so the city could be spared. Um, so the city would, could repent. God gave him an opportunity to repent. You know, he, and even in the message, you know, the, the book of Jonah only records a few words that Jonah said. Yet, 40 days, and Nineveh shall be destroyed. So in other words, Jonah's message to the people, God's message to the people was, you've got 40 days. And of course it says in there, the people believe God. And God, they, they, they repented. God forgave them. And so, so God has always loved the, the nations of the world. And, and so seeking to save them. And so he made his temple, a house of prayer for all nations. And so the zeal of the Lord, the zeal of thine house, the Bible says, 
consumed the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, um, you know, we all have the same thing, and we have, a, have that strong desire to make sure that God's house is, is what it ought to be. So there's his zeal. Now let's take a look at some, the scripture, the New Testament quote on the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. So Romans 15, here it talks about that. And um, it talks about it <clears throat> in the New Testament in a couple different places and with a couple different applications. And this is something that, again, Paul, he issues a command or teach a, a strong teaching instruction to the believers. Um, and this particular one in Romans 15 is an instruction for the strong believers. Now there's interesting there's sometimes that, that uh, Paul talks about believers who are strong. And how do we know that? How do we know what a strong believer is? Well, in some cases, Paul indicates that by what they do. Right? Notice Romans 15 and verse 1. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. All right? And the idea there is weaknesses. Right, take a look at back in Romans 14, verse 1. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye. Now he's talking, who's he talking to? He's talking to the church at Rome, not the Catholic church, but the true Bible-believing church in Rome. And he he's tells them to receive those who are weak in the faith. All right? But not to doubtful disputations. In other words, not to, you know, have, not to have all these standards about what to eat, what not to eat, and all that. But, but so, we receive. All right? There is, a, there is a, a teaching in the Word of God, going back to Matthew 28, where Jesus said, Go, go ye therefore and, and, and teach all nations. In other words, preach the gospel, evangelize, get people saved, and then after they're saved, baptize them. And now that baptism, of course, for believers, we know that. And the pattern in the book of Acts was when people were saved, they were baptized, and they were, then they were organized into local churches. You see that all through the book of Acts. You see Paul in Corinth. And Acts 18 says, Many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. And then what, what do you have a, little, a couple years later? You have Paul writing to the church... In Corinth, now there was no church when Paul went there, and so the point I'm making is this: He's, the Lord said, "Make disciples, baptize them, and then teach them." So, in other words, there has to be a, to be room and time for new believers to grow. I was talking to a young man a few years ago, Christian fella, and he was telling me about he wanted to become a member of a, of a Baptist church in the Scranton area, and he was telling me all it took him like two years to go through all the things that that church required to become a member. Now that's really not how Jesus taught it, all right? 
we don't ex we shouldn't anyway we don't we shouldn't expect perfection we shouldn't expect a person to be fully mature before they can become a member they get saved and they evidence that and they're baptized they become a member then they're trained in the things of God and so that's what Paul was getting at in 14 and he said him that is weak in the faith receive ye and then chapter 15 we then that are strong ought the word ought doesn't mean it would be good if you did, but it doesn't really matter. No, the word ought means, literally, it is of necessity, all right? We then strong ought to bear, and the word bear there is to help to carry the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. In other words, not to build ourselves up, not to say that we're doing this and, and make ourselves happy and all that. But it says this, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. So whatever we do for fellow believers in the church is to be for their edification, to build them up. All right? Now, here's where, here's the tie, if you will, to Psalm 69. Verse 3 says, For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. And it's interesting, isn't it, that, that, that talking about bearing the infirmities, the strong, helping the weak, is, 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 is considered an application of Psalm 69. That Christ, what, it, what he did on earth was not to please himself. Not to make a name for himself. Not to build his reputation. For the Bible says, we read that this morning, he made himself of no reputation. All right? And he constantly said, I'm not here to do my will. I'm here to do the will of him that sent me. The word that I preach, the word that I speak is not mine. He said that in John. But his that sent me, John 7, he says, my, the doc my doctrine isn't mine. It's his that sent me. So again, he gave proper respect and credit to, the, to his heavenly Father. Even though they're equal in essence, yet there, there is a structure if you want to call it that, even inside the Godhead, in the Trinity of God, there is an order of authority. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right? The Father is over all, and according to the Scripture, Jesus Christ is in submission to the Father, and the Holy Spirit is in submission to both the Father and the Son. All right? So when you say Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that's the order of authority within the Godhead. And so, um, so Jesus didn't come to please himself. He came to please his Father, to do the Father's will. And also, he came to minister to people. Now, for example, keep our, let's keep our place in, in, in Romans 15, and let's look back at, at Matthew chapter 20 for just a moment. And there can be, and there has been, competition. There can be competition between individual believers. There can be competition with, between churches. And so, um, <clears throat> let's take a look um, in Matthew 20. 
Let me get the context here, so let's back up to verse 20. Matthew 20, verse 20. And then came to him, that is to Jesus, the mother of Zebedee's children. Know what this is, where this is going, right? With her sons, worshiping him. Desiring a certain thing of him. Oh boy, watch out here. We want to make sure when we worship God, we don't have an ulterior motive. We want to get, you know, get in good so we can get what we want. That was what they did here. Um, and he sent her, what wilt thou? Of course he knew, <laughs> but he, had, he wanted to have her bring it out. She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on the right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. Now, that, I guess that's, a, that's, that's kind of a typical mother. She wants her sons. You know, she wants to see her sons advance. Probably dads want that too. But you know what? Jesus answered and said, You know not what you ask. And you know what he, was, what he meant by that? You don't understand what that's, that's going to cost your two sons to get in that position. That's what he's saying. You don't know what you're asking. Are ye able, see, to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, they say unto him, We are able. So Jesus, and they, they, the two boys were in on that, the two sons, and they were, they were all for that request. He said, Yeah, we're able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And that's the baptism of trial and, and fire and so on. The cup is the cup of suffering. And so he says, are you, are you able to do that? They said, yes, we are. He said, you sure you're going to? Yes. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. Now, then we can look at that and realize that the Lord Jesus did everything in submission to the Father's will, even so much as the positions in the kingdom are, are, are up to the Father's discretion. All right, now, <clears throat> let's read, what, read on. Verse 24, And when the ten heard it, that is the other ten of the twelve, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. They were, they were angry because they, you know, they, they were so greedy. You know, because not only that, because this, this, is, this is not the first time that there had been contention. Remember one time they're walking along and Jesus said, what, what were you talking about back there a little ways? And they wouldn't say because they were debating over who should be the greatest. You know, you gotta, every, every group's got to have a leader, right? So they would, everyone else said, might as well be me. So, um, but Jesus called them unto him. Look at this, verse 25, and said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them. And they that are great exercise authority upon them. So in the disciples' mind, Jesus said, They're thinking like, you're thinking just like worldly Gentiles. Because you're wondering, how can I climb high enough? to attain the place of greatness. That's, that's the world, right? The world even there, you climb, all right? People talk about climbing the corporate ladder. And I've heard it said, people have said, you know, I'm going to climb the corporate ladder and I'm going to have to do so. I'm going to have to step on some hands to get up where I want to be. Well, and that's the thinking of the Gentiles. Who's going to be the greatest? But Jesus said, no, no, you have it all wrong. But it shall not be so among you. 
but his service that will be great among you, let him be your minister, in other words, your servant, and whoso will be chief among you, let him be your servant. He's saying, guys, you have it all wrong. Greatness in the sight of God is not climbing to the top, it's going to the bottom. It's not who's the best leader, it's who's the best follower, who's the best servant. And then he says this, even as, verse 28, the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. In other words, he came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And then, Jesus, and of course, Christ illustrated that, um, demonstrated that every day that he spent with his disciples and they spent with him as he went about, seeking the welfare of others and seeking um, to do his Father's will. And then finally, in the book of John, where he, he, he washed the disciples' feet, you know, to show the, the ultimate example of humility before his disciples. And so, the Lord Jesus Christ did not come to please himself. And I, I, I taught us turn there because of what it says in Romans 15. So let's go back to Romans chapter 15. The reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. And, and so he, in this particular text, Paul, as he's led by the Holy Spirit, compares the infirmities of the weak to reproaches. Because just like the disciples of the Lord, they sinned. They messed up. They made mistakes. I mean, I, you know, how many times did Peter have to kind of like, you know, eat his words or, you know, because he, he said the wrong thing. And, uh, you know, and, and he just, he didn't get it. He was always the first one to speak up. I mean, we would, you know, to, we would say that Peter was a, was a born leader. He had that personality. But, you know, that God doesn't care about that. It's not who has the most, you know, dominant personality. You know, I hear all that. You know, we have that junk ticket society, that A personalities and B and all these kind of things. And you're, you're supposed to do according to your, no, 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 no. God doesn't line us up according to our personality. He calls us to do certain things, and he equips us when he calls us. And so it's not us, but it's the Lord and the Spirit of God and the Word of God making us what we what we ought to be, all right? And um, anyway, so, so Jesus did not please himself, but he bore the reproach. Now, and there were, there were times, and, and you, 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 I'm sure as you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are many times Jesus defended his disciples. And, that there's, and, and, and in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's really only one time where it seems that Christ rebuked his disciples publicly. And that's when they couldn't cast the demon out of the boy. He said, oh, faithless. But he wasn't just rebuking his disciples. He's rebuking the whole, the whole group, calling them a faithless generation. But there are times when the Pharisees and different ones, they came to Christ and they said, they had a, they said something about his disciples. You know, why don't they fast? And Jesus defended them. All right? And so um, he did that. He took the reproach upon himself. Now, ultimately... Christ took our sins.
on himself. All the reproaches that we reproach God, he took them on himself. And also the disgraces and the insults hurled on him against God and against the people of God. Remember when, um, when Christ met when Saul on the road to Damascus and he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And, and Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus directly. He was persecuting the people of Christ and, and Christ takes that personally. You're doing it to him, right? So he took that reproach, and, and so the Bible says, yes, so should we be willing to bear the infirmities of the weak. Now, and there's another way that this is applied. It is found in Hebrews 13. So let's go there. Hebrews chapter 13. Um... Really, really tremendous um, passage of scripture. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11. Hebrews 13, 11 says, For the bodies of those beasts, that's the idea of the, of the sacrifice animals, whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, are burned without the camp. Now there are certain sin offerings, burnt offering, the whole burnt offering. None of it was to be used. The blood was to be shed on the altar, they, but the, all of the animal was to be burned. And the ashes dumped outside the camp, right? Because it was, they were they were bearing the sin of the people, and the principle being that God does not allow sin in His camp, right? And the Bible talks about that in heaven there's nothing that defiles. Okay, it's just not allowed. And so the bodies were out there, and it was considered refuse and dung and worthless. All right. Notice verse twelve. Wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. In other words, outside the city. And there's a, one, there's a picture that Jesus Christ, his body, on the cross, was considered a despicable thing. By, certainly by those who crucified him, but even in God's sight. This would be, there's a great connection here between that, this, this passage here, Jesus suffering without the gate or outside the gate, and 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, God made him to be sin for us. And so the refuge, the, you know, the burnt, the burning, the burnt offering, and the sin offering, and all those things outside the camp. And so Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, it's because God made him to be sin for us poured out the wrath of, of, of God upon the sin of the human race. Now let's bring make that more personal, right? My sin and your sin and the sins of the world is what made the Father make his Son to be sin. That is an offering for sin, a the punishment for sin, all those things came upon Christ. And so that was reproach upon him, right? Here's the application to us. Verse 13. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, outside the camp, 
bearing his reproach. All right, now what is the camp? Well, the camp, this passage had a special application for Jewish believers. To stand for Christ would be to go outside the established religion of Judaism and thus bear great reproach. Now you remember that in the book of John it says that the Pharisees had made a rule that if anybody openly confessed Christ, they would be put out of the synagogue or the temple, depending on what part of uh, Israel it was. And remember the blind man? John chapter 9, Jesus, Jesus healed the man blind from birth that he confessed Christ that he was put out of the synagogue. And of course Jesus found him. And so it's talking about the reproach that comes upon a Jewish believer when they get when they get saved and they leave the camp. They leave the established Jewish life. And Brother Rusty one time telling about a guy he knew, a Jewish fellow that got saved. And when his parent, his father found out that this Jewish man had gotten saved, they purchased, he purchased a casket, they had a funeral, they went to the cemetery, and they buried the casket and said, my son is dead, he no longer lives. Because he became a Christian. That's reproach. Now we don't see that necessarily. Um, I know people that have been very angry because their children were they were raised Catholic and they got saved. Um, in this day and age, Muslims who turn to Christ and are saved face reproach. Same thing. They've been, they've, some of them have been declared dead and all that kind of thing. And so it's something that's understood. Um, in India, when Hindus turn to Christ, there can be tremendous uh, repercussions and, and reproaches upon them. So that's what he's talking about. And really, it's, it's an application to every believer, right? When everybody gets saved, they, they, have, they leave something. They're, they walk away from something. Um, we, there's, you know, our life just doesn't go on like it, never, like it never happened that we got saved. There's things that we give up or go away from or have to forsake. But of course, we get a lot more than we ever give up. And then people think about pastors, missionaries, evangelists, different, you know, full-time Christian workers and what they leave behind. Um, sometimes it's careers and all that. Now, I didn't have to worry about that. I mean, I was saved at a young age, and when I was a teenager, I knew the Lord was calling me to preach, so my life went in that direction. So I didn't walk away from really much of anything, but maybe what I could have had or something like that. But I, you have, I hear about people that, you know, they have their engineers or they're, you know, they're really well off in the business world and they, they get saved or they're already saved. God calls them to become a missionary or whatever. And so they, there's things that they walk away from. And, and everybody here tonight, there's things that we would, if we hadn't gotten saved, we, we might be enjoying that we, we don't enjoy as Christians because we've walked away from that life, right? And so that's, that's, there's a principle there for everybody who gets saved, there's something left behind, right? Old things have passed away, St. Corinthians. All things have become new. And so, so standing true to Christ will bring reproach. And that's the subject of the, the message last night tonight, the subject of reproach. And so we must stand and we must not waver. And that's, that, there's always that, you know, there's that pressure from that reproach, whatever form it takes, 
you know, maybe somebody said, oh, do you have to go to church all the time, or, or whatever, 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 they, whatever they throw at us. And I know that everyone here has had things thrown at us, all right? Um, and, well, I'm sorry, and, and my wife's family in Canada, she has some sisters, one in particular, that, that's always kind of digging at her and then me, because we're Christians and we're following the Lord, and, you know, we ought to be doing, you know, we should be doing other things, and, you know, that sort of thing. So, there's always that. I'm sure if we had opened it up, and you're willing to testify, everybody would say something. Somehow, you've been reproached you, by, by family members or, or co-workers or, or, you know, something like that. And that's one of the devil's tricks to try to discourage us and get us to walk away. The word that they use is recant. Recant your faith and everything will be fine. Well, the true believers can't do that. Now, one other thing, one final thought. Titus chapter 2, let's go there for just a moment. Um, The book of Titus chapter 2. So, there's other scriptures we can take a look at. Um, about the fact that Jesus said we are to rejoice if we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, when people say things against us falsely for Jesus' sake, we're to, be, to, we're to rejoice and be exceeding glad. And then Titus chapter 2, verse 13 says, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So the idea is just keep looking and just, you know, keep going. Just hold on for a little longer. Serve a little longer and then we're going to be taken out of here. We're going to be rescued out of here. But notice what verse 14 says. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. That is a special God's special people zealous of good works. And so there's that zeal, zealous of good works, zealous to do the things that please God and and love uh, to live for the Lord and love to stand for him and even love to bear reproach because we know when people reproach us, it means that we are doing something or we're, we're living a certain way that they identify with Christ, they identify as a Christian, and they don't like it, and so they reproach us, because they can't reproach God directly, and they can curse him and so on, but they can't persecute God. Uh, They can't fight against God, so they take it out on his people sometimes. And when that happens, we just need to realize, you know what, we're in good company. And by the way, that's what Paul meant when he said the fellowship of his sufferings. That's the whole idea, being reproached along with Christ. Um, and, it, it, and it is. I mean, it is. That's the way it is. It's getting, there. it's getting more and more so in our country. But, you know, it's worth it to stand for the Lord. And so may the Lord help us. By the way, the word zealous, as it's used in Titus 2.14, means enthusiastic, deeply committed. All right? That's what, we, that's what the Lord uh, wants us to be. Realize that we're doing it for him. Yes, it's for the benefit of others, but it's basically to the Lord. In a way, our life is an an act of worship. We're presenting our lives as an act of worship before God. All right? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time that we can uh, be here tonight, Father, in the uh, singing of hymns and the the, uh, uh, study of thy word. We're so thankful for the word of God. Thankful for Christ and all that he was willing to do 
to go through and all that he did go through for us. Father, we pray for each of us here tonight, this little company of believers, and I praise thee for their faithfulness and for being here once again this evening. And God, just, just help us to stand for thee, to live for thee, Lord, and to serve the King of Kings. And we pray in his precious name. Amen. All right, 495 is our closing hymn for tonight. Um, Brother, if, you, if you're uh, willing to come up and read that, then I'll, go, I'll be unwilling to go to the piano and see how bad I can do. <laughs> oh, thank you. Excuse me. Oh, 